0: So I wanna, um, I'm gonna begin my sermon with a, uh, with a confession. And it's a confession that I, I uh, might not be able to say in other churches, right? But I know I can say it to you. It's, it's a wonderful, one thing I really like about this church. And it's, this is something, by the way, that I've been, I've been talking about with my uh, friends and my family for a while now. And I'm, and I'm telling it to you, in part because it's a good way to start the sermon, but also because it's a celebration of the freedom I feel in this pulpit. And my confession to you is that I'm not a very good Christian. (laughs) All right. I I actually, I feel as if I'm a pretty good pastor. But I'm not a good Christian anymore. I used to be. Uh, But I think life caught up with me. And maybe it was the Spirit of God. And, 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 and I say it might have been the Spirit of God because I, I still believe in God. In fact, the older I get, the more I believe in God. Or it's what I believe about God that's the problem, right? Or maybe it's what I don't believe about God, or better yet, it's what I haven't yet figured out about God, which is to say, the more I believe, the less I understand Now, this gets really confusing because I still rather like traditional God talk, but I seldom think of traditional Christian language as a fact-based vocabulary. Again, this is a change. I used to read theology looking for truth, truth with a capital T. Nowadays, I love traditional theological concepts for their poetry and for the beauty of their metaphors. Even when the writers, theologians, and doctors of the church thought they were expressing some sort of ultimate and inconvertible cosmic truth, I find the writing powerful for its ability to harness logic and pure imagination at the same time. It's, it's mythology in rational philosophical drag. And, and as such... Almost by accident, sometimes traditional theology points us in the general direction of God's beauty and God's mystery and God's love. And I find myself directed to God, not to the doctrine itself, but by the imagination that conceived the doctrine, and especially by the beauty of the writing that communicates the ideas. For example, I love the idea that Jesus died for my sins not because I have a particular attachment to the idea that I'm a terrible sinner or, or, or to the idea that God in Christ is violently suicidal, but I am comforted by the idea that God loves me that much and that despite everything, God might still find me worthy of saving. I also like the idea of a Trinitarian God, not because it's rational for God to be at the same time three persons in one God, but because it is irrational for God to be Father, Son, and Holy Spirit all at once. I like to think, that a belief in the Trinity is so absurd that it might keep Christians humble. It hasn't, but it should. (laughs) All of which is to say I'm not a very good Christian. I believe in God, but I don't always believe things about God. A good Christian, I suppose, ought to have a bit more confidence around who they believe God to be, and I, I don't. But here's what I also suspect to be true. I suspect that there are a lot of people like me in the world. I know that this congregation has plenty of folks who might qualify as not good Christians if we define that a that Christian is good who embraces a set of doctrines and theologies with confidence. But I, but I don't think it's just Montclair Presbyterian Church. Seven years ago or something like that, this congregation took a survey as part of the process of hiring a new pastor. And when you did, you discovered that 55% of the congregation felt that it was essential for the next pastor to believe in God. And I'll be honest, when I first read that, I was a little bit worried about you guys. (laughs) But then I thought about the congregations that I had served and and about the congregations I had attended at various times and in sundry places before I went and got myself ordained. And I have to admit that, well, the fact that 45% of you didn't necessarily need for the pastor to believe in God, that is a bit high. But I also think... That the real difference between Montclair Presbyterian Church and other congregations, it's probably not a lack of belief. It's probably an abundance of honesty. Congregations everywhere are filled with people who aren't very good Christians, aren't really sure what they believe in. And, And thanks be to God for that, by the way. I don't think that anyone who honestly embraced their doubts ever committed an act of terrorism in the name of God. They were yet, the God they were yet to figure out, right? And by the way, I know that there are a lot of good Christians out there who might protest the idea that it's okay to believe in God while being uncertain in one's beliefs about God. But here's a secret that I suspect has been hiding in plain sight for about 2,000 years now. If believing in God but struggling with beliefs about God makes us subpar Christians, then the church from its very inception has been designed to welcome bad Christians. And and, and I say this because I'm pretty sure that's what this morning's lesson from the first chapter of Paul's letter to the Corinthians is all about. This portion of the letter under consideration begins with Paul saying that he's heard a report of factions in the congregation some claim allegiance to Paul, some to Apollo, some to Cephas, which is a Greek way of saying Peter, some to Christ, because they're just above it all, right? And that's pretty typical of churches. We break into factions. In fact, these verses sound like the beginning of several different denominations. And what I might expect for Paul to do is to adjudicate between the four factions, especially since he starts out by admonishing the Corinthians to be united, to, to set aside their divisions. I would expect Paul to choose a side or to articulate what's best about each of the factions, factions and thereby bringing together a whole new faction. But he doesn't even suggest that those who take the side of being in, on Jesus' team, he doesn't even say that Jesus' team is right. Nor does he say that those who are of the Paul faction should be congratulated for their obvious wisdom and spiritual perception. Rather, he says, be united in the message of the crucified Christ. There's there's no discussion of what the crucifixion mean means there's there's no there's no doctrine of the atonement here. No talk of the resurrection. Now, resurrection comes later in the letter. But here here for now, the message is just a foolish message about a crucified rabbi who also was God's anointed one. Paul wanted his readers to believe in Christ. What they were to believe about Christ was secondary. So maybe the church is supposed to be a place for believers who aren't good Christians after all. Of course, the problem is that it's hard to control folks who aren't good Christians. For the first couple of hundred years of church history, Christians argued and fought and excommunicated one another over obscure points of doctrine It was rowdy and it was wild, but it was also dynamic, and the church was growing, and and the Christian thinking about God was evolving. It was embracing Jewish traditions and Greco Roman philosophy, as well as input from Egyptian and Persian mythologies. But then the, the Roman Empire adopted Christianity as its official religion, and our evolution stopped. The empire knew that it had to impose order and doctrinal conformity on the unwieldy followers of Christ. The emperor called the bishops together and they voted in creeds and doctrines. And then all of a sudden, the natural evolution of our understanding of God was over. At least officially. Because people have continued to grow and develop in our understanding of the holy and the mysterious. And much of that evolution and growth has come from observations and imaginations of those outside the centers of power. Because to contribute new ideas about God, or at least the wrong kinds of new ideas about God, ideas that embrace ancient pagan wisdom, for example, or ideas that include the possibility that God is female or that God is known equally by those of European and African and Asian and pre-Columbian American descent, these ideas are anathema to the empire and to institutional religion which is to say such ideas about God are important and needed they are a vital form of resistance which is also to say if being a good Christian means lacking doubt around certain official doctrinal statements about God then I suspect the Holy One is calling us to be bad Christians I also want to say this If you have come to believe that your inability to wrap your head around certain bits of Christian theology means that you have somehow failed as a person of faith, then please reconsider your assumptions. If you have ever felt spiritual shame because you feel like a bad Christian, please walk with your head held high. If you have ever felt excluded because you don't believe everything, then please join the club. I have grown to believe that God wants our understanding of who she is to grow and to evolve. And that cannot happen if everyone is a good Christian. If everyone is a good Christian, there will be no new ideas about God. And if there are no new ideas about God, then our meager grasp of the divine will only get smaller and less meaningful. And while that's happening, the forces of conformity will grow in their power. So, dearly beloved, believe in God even if your beliefs about God are shaky. Bring your doubts and bring your fresh insights. Bring your imagination for all of this makes our faith stronger through evolution and change. Now there's an old hymn that I like. The first stanza goes like this. The church's one foundation is Jesus Christ, her Lord. She is his new creation by water and the word. From heaven he came and sought her to be his holy bride. With his own blood he bought her and for her life. He died. That's good poetic language, old language, fine metaphor, so long as you're looking for a faith born of imagination rather than of inconvertible fact. And I almost had to sing that hymn today after the sermon, but I, I don't know what to do with what I think is probably the third stanza. It goes something like this. Though with a scornful wonder, this world sees her oppressed by schisms rent asunder, by heresies distressed, yet saints their watch are keeping their cry goes up. How long? And soon the night of weeping shall be the morn of song. I don't know what to do with that stanza. I'm no fan of schisms, but I am rather fond of heresies. <laughs> One breaks us down and the other fosters the kind of evolution that keeps us alive and moving. And so I'm bothered by equating the two, the way this hymn equates schisms and heresies as if for the same thing. So instead, we're not going to sing that hymn. Instead, we're going to sing as our closing hymn or a hymn of response rather, a song that I learned among the hippie Christians of my childhood. We are one in the spirit. You will notice as we sing that the song celebrates unity found in working together, side by side, walking together hand by hand in hand and praising God together and being known as Christians by our love. Such unity is the stuff of healthy faith. It's it's not a unity of creedal conformity, but a unity in the Christ who calls us to walk and work and praise and love together. This is not the unity of good Christians, but it is the unity of good people.